text, if you don't have a Bible in front of you, it should be in a chairback Bible nearby you on page 888 as we come to continue our ongoing study of John's Gospel this morning and a look at chapter 3, verse 16 through 21, that great portion of Scripture that I'm sure a number of you know so well and is so familiar to many of you. So let me read those verses for us and then I pray for God's blessing on our study and we'll begin together. So listen uh, once again as the Lord does speak to you uh, through his perfect word. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Lord, we do come to you today knowing that so often our souls can melt away for sorrow, Do strengthen us today according to your word that in your steadfast love you would give us life, that you would lift our heads toward your son Jesus Christ that we might find salvation in his name. And because you are good, Father, we ask that you would do good to us this morning through your son Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. After the morning service last week, I was speaking with one of our church members about road trips to the West, because so often throughout both of our families' experience, we've made road trips to the West. And so we were talking about, you know, kind of common shared experience as it belongs to visiting national parks, as it belongs to a delight in a drier climate, as it belongs to seeing, as many of you know, I mean, this, this scenery that is different out west than it is here in in North Texas. And this brother in the church, he made a remark uh, somewhere along in the way of that conversation as as I had probably said something about uh, being amazed about what it would be like to live underneath, you know, these kind of mountain ranges. And he said, you know, I don't think I would ever want to actually live there. And I must have had some type of a confused look of sorts, you know, across my face. And he says, because I don't think I would appreciate it if I saw it every day. And I'm sure many of you know that it often happens that way in such places of natural scenery, of glory and majesty. You might go to such a place, have been to such a place, and you stop and stare at what's rather glorious and beautiful in front of you. But you might stop and stare long enough that you soon realize that local citizens, well, they're not stopping and staring, are they? You know, they walk in front of you, they walk behind you, they walk around you as though there's nothing unusual in front of them. Because what truly is extraordinary, it's ordinary to them. What's tremendous has become typical. The majestic 
It's just mundane. And I, I trust you know that not only does that happen in places like natural scenery, it can happen in every way with some of the great texts of Christian theology and spirituality. Because what we have before us today, of course, in John 3.16, has to be the most famous verse in all the New Testament. One of the most famous verses, no doubt, in all the Bible. And maybe you know that you can come to a summit-like peak of John 3. And what should be extraordinary, it's just ordinary. What should be this majestic announcement? Well, it's just altogether mundane to you today. Uh, what I hope to do by the Spirit's help and in the truth of God's Word is, is that we might see uh, this truth hitting us like it should. More like a crescendo of revelation in Jesus Christ and not so much just a common thing we've heard hundreds if not thousands of times. So you need to remember something of the context when you come to John chapter 3, verse 16 and following. If you've been with us in recent weeks, you might remember that at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's in Jerusalem. He's starting out of the earthly ministry, and when he came to Jerusalem, uh, like so many pilgrims on Passover week, he went to the temple. And there, instead of finding a house of prayer, he found that money changers and merchants had turned that court of the Gentiles into a house of, of profiteering. So he put together a whip. He, he drove them out. He, he cleansed the temple. It was this sign in and of itself of what the Old Testament prophet Malachi had proclaimed so many centuries before. And uh, what the text goes on to tell us is that this wasn't the only sign that Jesus performed in Jerusalem at that time. He was performing other signs. We don't know exactly what they were, but these signs that were attracting attention uh, or attracting interest, and even from one of the most notable, wealthy, famous men in all the land, a man named Nicodemus, well, Nicodemus was kind of interested in Jesus, and so he came to him, as we saw last week, late at night, and in, in the course of the beginning part of their conversation, Jesus, really in the first thing he said, he, he rocked Nicodemus's religious world. If you just glance up to chapter 3, verse 3, you'll notice that Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, that a man must be born again. He must be born from above if he is to see the kingdom of God. And so he said that the new birth is this divine necessity for, for anyone to see God. Yeah, that, that Nicodemus, whom Jesus calls the teacher in Israel, Nicodemus who sat on the Sanhedrin, a ruler of the Jews, Nicodemus who was old, surely wealthy, surely learned in the Old Testament scriptures. If anybody in Jerusalem looked like he deserved to be in the kingdom, it was Nicodemus. And Jesus says, no, you too, Nicodemus, must be born Again, by water and spirit. And so they went back and forth. Uh, this, this old teacher in Israel and this young Messiah who's soon going to be revealed as the true teacher of Israel. And by the end of the passage last week, we noticed how, how Jesus said the way to new birth, the way to regeneration, uh, the way to salvation, it comes by looking up. Because if you glance back to verse 14 and 15, immediately where we went left off last week, uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, a story from Numbers 21, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have 
eternal life. And so our text picks up immediately after that and is essentially doing little more, at least at the beginning, than answering that question that grandparents and parents, you have no doubt, heard from children thousands and thousands of times. Why? Why must the Son of Man be lifted up? And it's not the why question of what we even saw last week. Well, of course, he must be lifted up for you to be saved. So you must look up in belief. No, it's speaking more about the why behind the motivation. Why does God require? What's his reason? What is the motivating, animating reality in God's heart that caused Jesus Christ to come and be lifted up that all might look on him and live? Well, the simple answer, of course, in our text is God's love for sinners. Why did Jesus come? Why, why must Jesus be lifted up on the cross to die that people might look on him and live? This is the simple answer that's meant to astonish you, that's meant to amaze you, and I pray that it does today. God loves people like you enough to send his son. And the way in which the text is going to work that out, I, I trust will strike our conscience afresh this morning. And so that's a simple theme that I want to put before you today in our short passage is God's love for sinners. And I want to show you three different parts to that love. And the first is simply this. I want you to see in verse 16, love revealed, love revealed. Because you'll notice again, uh, it's, a, it's a verse that surely, even if you're not a Christian, you, you've heard before in our a nation here in America. And there are surprises that really abound in this well-known verse. First, I want you to see the cause. What does it say, verse 16, at the beginning? For God so loved the world. Now, here in John, the world, at this point, it refers to just sinful humanity. Creatures that God made. His creation that hates him. His creation that doesn't want anything to do with him. Sinful humanity that would rather live without him. What's the cause for Christ's coming for people that hate him, despise him, and want nothing to do with him? For God so loved the world that he made. And one of the things that you want to know about John chapter 3, verse 16 through 21 is because it does have this clear unifying theme about God's love is you need to know something about how we measure love. I wonder if you've ever considered this before. Like, how do you know that you can measure one love as greater than another? Well, classically, in kind of the idea of the philosophy of love, usually we would talk about these three indicators that measure love. The first is the person who loves. The second is the recipient of love. And the greater the gap between the two of them, the greater the demonstration of love. But there's a third factor, is the expression of love. It's not just the greatness of the gap, it's the greatness of the gift of love. And you see how in just two simple phrases at the beginning of John 3.16, it encapsulates those three indications, what one old theologian has called a love that is greater than anyone could ever conceive. Because it's not just the cause. You see, even the cost, the text continues, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. My kids, I wonder if you can, I think about a story in the Old Testament where a father was supposed to give his one and only son that 
every Jew living at this time in Jerusalem would know intimately. It's all the way back in the book of Genesis. You might remember God commanded Abraham to what? Kill his one and only son. And if you're a parent, you surely read a text like that and it strikes you with some degree of intensity in the emotion, the agony that belongs to Abraham in that moment, walking up the mountain with Isaac, planning to what? Kill his one and only son. But Abraham doesn't have to do it, does he? Because a substitute ram is provided, Isaac's life is spared, it's a substitute ram that was just a type of what we already seen in John chapter 1 with John the Baptist observing the Savior coming towards him there at the Jordan River, and what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The cause is God's love. The cost is God's Son. It's even amplifying the gift in the original language because if you translated it more according to the word order, it would read something like, For God so loved the world that his one and only Son he gave. The greatest possible gift he could ever give, he gave. The greatest possible blessing he could ever give, he gave. The greatest possible loss a father could ever experience, he lost. God's love for sinners has a cause. It has a cost. You notice even the condition follows in verse 16 that whoever believes in him I know a preacher, at least I've heard a preacher, who probably is one of the most eloquent preachers I've ever listened to, uh, preach from this passage. And I remember he said of John 3.16, it's a symphony of salvation written in the key of B. And what he means by that is not about what you achieve. It's about the one in whom you must believe. The condition, what God demands of people in light of Jesus Christ is not... Be better. That's not be perfect. That's not even just be good. You know, you couldn't be good enough. You couldn't be perfect enough. You couldn't be better enough. So what does he say? Just believe. Which already in the course of this gospel has been used synonymously with other verbs like behold or look. Or even all the way back in John chapter 1 in the prologue, receive. And of course, the consequences come, you'll see at the end of the text, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So you see how almost the full story of the Bible and almost the full story of the gospel itself is encapsulated in those four parts of John 3.16. Students, you'll notice here at the very end, uh, what is the text telling us, but that there are only two, and there are always only two possible destinies that belong to any person. You can perish forever, or you can live forever. And there's no in-between. What the context is soon going to make clear is that to perish means that you'll live forever under God's everlasting divine condemnation. That it's an eternity away from the presence of God's love, and it's an eternity lived in the presence of God's righteous wrath. That your sin deserves... That your transgressions even require you suffer under an eternal torment of the penalty of God's wrath. But the good news is, if you believe in Jesus, you won't perish. You can't perish. You should not perish. But you'll have eternal life. 
And I wonder if you've thought about the glories that belong to eternal life recently. Sometimes death has a way of focusing these kind of things, doesn't it? I mean, it was only about 48 hours ago on Friday that a number of us were in this room as we had the memorial service for a brother in our church who died earlier this week. And I was up here at the same pulpit uh, speaking about the eternal life that he now enjoys from a text in Psalm chapter 16, which speaks about in his presence there's fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so great is eternal life that even one old fiction writer, he kind of paints this story of a magical land and he has this kind of afterlife that's meant to depict something of heaven and he has a very eloquent way of speaking out the glories of that afterlife. He simply says something like, finally the characters entered that story for which they were created, where every chapter is better than the one that came before. I mean, can you imagine eternal life where every glance of your eye takes in something that is greater than you saw before? I mean, it's genuinely unconceivable, isn't it? You cannot conceive amazing. Then you look over there, even more amazing. And then you look over there, even more than more amazing. And you do that for all eternity because you're in the fullness of God's forgiveness. You're, you're in the presence of the Prince of Peace. You see the King in his beauty and all you have to do is believe in God's gift of love, love that's revealed in the death of Jesus Christ. Of course, the rest of the text goes on to say in verse 17 through 21 that there are those only two responses that can belong to this gift. You can receive it or you can reject it. So the second section I want to show you is moving on from love revealed is to love received. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We have a number of men in our church right now that are going through officer training for the next five months or so. And and the next time they meet, one of the planned discussion items will be uh, hearing them answer this question, which is a a central and key question to any church's life. But the question is, what is the mission of the church? Because so often churches can go, go, go awry, they can go astray if they answer that question wrongly. And the same thing is true, isn't it? Not just what is the mission of the church being a vital question, but, but here in John 3, it's what's the mission of Jesus Christ? Why did he come? And if you get that question wrong, you'll go astray and awry. And we don't even know actually here in verse 16 through 21 if this is Jesus speaking in a continued dialogue way with Nicodemus or if it's the Apostle John kind of interjecting his commentary here and what we saw last week with this night-long conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. I tend to think it's probably John interjecting his commentary here. Uh, But surely, if it's Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, it would have struck Nicodemus as any ordinary Jew at this time in the first century is altogether surprising that you mean to tell me the Messiah is coming into the world not to condemn, but to save All people who believe in him? Because the ordinary Jewish expectation of the time was, yes, the Messiah was going to come, but what he was going to come primarily to do, and astoundingly in his power, he was going to defeat all of Israel's enemies. He was going to crush all of Israel's oppressors. 
he was going to arrive and condemn all unbelievers. And here we find out not, Jesus did not come in that first coming for condemnation. There's a last judgment coming when he returns for sure. But he comes the first time to save, not to condemn. And so as can so often even happen in our time, the Jews of the first century in many ways were fashioning a savior. They were fashioning a Messiah after their own image. And so many do that in our context today. I mean, have you ever had a conversation with someone who, who speaks about what Jesus wants and maybe you know them well enough to know, isn't it striking that everything you say Jesus wants happens to be everything that you want? Or everything that Jesus is said to desire just happens to match with all of your selfish desires. Now, this is a Christ who comes according to his divine mission. Or maybe even in a church like ours, it's not so much that as the spiritual problem, as much as, like many Jews in the first century, when you think of Jesus Christ, one of the first thoughts that comes into your mind is judge, not savior, executor, not deliverer. It's why John Calvin, when he comments on this verse, he speaks about in times of despair over our sin, in times of oppression according to the devil's assaults, this, John 3, 17, is a shield for us that in Christ Jesus we have a friend. We have a Savior. We have a Redeemer who comes to deliver us from sin. And so, of course, there are those who receive this love. Notice the first phrase of verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Now, students, you'll notice if I can coin a term, uh, the, the presentness of the blessing. It would be accurate, wouldn't it, for it to say in verse 18, whoever believes in him will not be condemned. Because that's true. We've got other texts in the Bible that would show that's true. But the good news to you today is whoever believes in him now, where you're seated this day listening to this word right now, you are not condemned by the Father. Don't you wonder if that was maybe haunting the Apostle Paul's reveling in this reality to the Romans when he says in Romans chapter 8, therefore now, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's, there's a presence to the freedom that belongs to people now that will fully and finally be enjoyed one day in all eternity. Love's been revealed in Jesus Christ and some have received that love. But as you'll notice, the rest of the text really focuses on those who reject God's love. If you look at the end of verse 18, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I've slowly but surely been making my way through this new history of a system of theology that dominated the English world from the late 1800s to the late 1900s. And as it grew in popularity in the late 19th century, it did so primarily through the, the broad ministry of a man and preacher in Chicago named Dwight Moody. And so it caused me to think about this old story of Dwight Moody in 1871. October 8th, 1871, uh, D.L. Moody's preaching in his congregation there in Chicago. It's the largest 
group of people he's ever preached to in his life. And he takes for his text a portion of Matthew 27. And his, his kind of uniting theme is really a question in the sermon. Uh, from that text in Matthew's gospel, he tells the congregants over and over, he says, what shall we do with Jesus who is called Christ? He gets to the end of the sermon. And he says, friends, what I want you to do is think about your answer to that question throughout this week. And then he says something like, next Sabbath, we'll consider the answer together from Calvary at the end of this part of Matthew's gospel. And so the congregation, as it so often happens, following the sermon, they rise to sing a song. It's a song they don't ever actually finish singing. Because as they're halfway through something like the second verse, they hear this rush and roar of fire engines racing through the streets. Because what was soon known as the Great Chicago Fire had just been ignited. That by the morning had raised almost the entire city to the ground. Countless people who thought they had a week to figure out what to do with Jesus found out within a few hours they didn't. And so to the end of his life and his preaching ministry, Moody always took that as a reminder that he must press home the urgency of deciding what to do about Jesus right then and there. He even said in one of his writings, he anticipated that at the last judgment, many of those souls would rise up against him because he did not tell them to come now. And do you see in verse 18, there, there is a, there's a necessity and urgency, isn't there? For in the exact same way we can speak about the presentness of salvation to believers, the text is speaking about that presence of condemnation upon unbelievers now, in this moment where you sit today. And so in ways that ought to strike us as though as we get to verse 19, uh, the, the gavel of God's judgment from his courtroom is declared. Notice, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Uh, the problem with unbelievers is not that they don't have love. It's they love sin so much they dare not come to a savior that loves them enough who would die for them. You know, I have someone in my life who you know, is considering the claims of Christ and there seems to be this tone of, you, you know, I think I, I would come to him if it wasn't for the fact of I know that I have to leave a lot behind. There's a love of darkness more there is than a love for light and this kind of contrast between light and darkness, it's already one that John's used in John chapter 1. He's telling us, of course, in John chapter 1, the light has appeared. The light of the world is Jesus Christ. And, and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, but, but he's saying here, isn't he, that you can't defeat the darkness, but you can, I'm sorry, you can't defeat the light, but you can deny the light. And the reason why people deny the light is because they love the darkness so much. But the text goes on to speak even about another motivation in verse 20. It says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. You know, children, if you're young enough, like my children are still, some of them young enough, if you come home to your house late at night and all the lights are turned off, if you're like my children, one of the first things you do when you open the door is you flip on a light switch. And then you suddenly see what's there. What the gospel of Jesus Christ does is, is it's a light switch, isn't it? it? It flips something on inside the heart. 
and it shows what's there. And, and John's gospel is telling us that people don't come to Jesus because they don't want to be found out. They think they can hide what's there. But of course, in reality, the light of Jesus Christ is already shining into that darkness. He's not surprised by what you did this week. He's not surprised by what you said this week. He's not surprised by what you thought this week. He's not surprised by what you did this week. Actually, what should surprise us is he saw what you did. He heard what you said. He noticed what you thought went unnoticed. And still he died for sinners like you. Knowing every evil thought, hearing every evil word, observing every evil deed that you have committed, are committing, and will commit. And he says, still, I will die for my own people that they might know the way, the truth, and the life found in me. And it's that truth to which the text ends, isn't it? Verse 21, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You know, we don't have time for this kind of rabbit trail uh, today, but I hope you might see some of you how John three sixteen through 21 uh, balances out what so often in our own minds seem to be these irreconcilable differences between human responsibility, you must believe, and divine sovereignty. He who walks in the truth only does so because he's carried out by God to do so. That these are friends who are not in competition with each other. Surely if it was Nicodemus hearing this from the Lord Jesus' mouth, it's him hearing from the Lord Jesus' mouth that it's not because you are morally superior that you come to Jesus. That's not because you are better that you walk in the truth. That's because the sovereign, loving kindness of God has come to you and revealed that love in Jesus Christ that you might receive it and not reject it. I wonder which one you're choosing today. I've heard the story of an old monk who came into an old cathedral in an old town to preach an old sermon. He told his church that the coming Sunday, he wanted to preach on God's love. But the church knew something was up because he said, I want you to come at dusk and hear this sermon about God's love. So as the congregation was kind of feeling into the room, seated in those kind of medieval pews, and the shadows are beginning to push out seemingly all the light, all goes dark. The people are waiting for this sermon on God's love. And eventually, this old monk walks in. He's carrying just a solitary candle. And everyone's expecting he's going to walk up to a pulpit like this, uh, set, set the candle there, that he might preach a sermon from God's word. But he walked right past the pulpit. He walked to the back wall, that much like ours, had a cross on it. And he just set the candle right there and didn't say a word for a brief moment. Then he blew it out and left the room. And in the hushed silence, everybody knew exactly what he had just done. He had preached a sermon of sorts on God's love. Because it's there, isn't it? 
that the light of Christ Jesus shines most brightly. God's love for sinners like you. And what I want to do here at the end, I want to take as it were the scripture as a candle. And I want to show you, highlight, I want to light two simple words in this passage uh, that, that I think further underscore the glory of God's love for sinners. First, I want you to notice the universality of God's love. It should strike you if you are reading this, stretching even back in the last week's text, verse 15. Whoever believes in him. Verse 16. Whoever believes in him. What does verse 18 say? Whoever believes in him. To speak about the universality of God's love doesn't mean that everyone is going to be saved. It does mean that anyone can be saved. No matter your age, you can be saved. No matter what you've done that you thought nobody noticed, you can be saved. No matter your difficulties, your despairs, your discouragements, your sins, your iniquities, and transgressions, no matter any of it, anyone can be saved. Because God's love has shone forth in Jesus Christ. And that even leads to the second word, not just the universality of God's love, but I want to show you the intensity of God's love. Because look at that first phrase in verse 16. God so loved the world. And I want to highlight just those two words are actually two letters that make up one word. So loved. God so loved. It's possible in the original language that you, you ought to translate that as, as a logical conclusion. God thus loved the world. It's more appropriate to translate it as this theological declaration. God so loved the world. Because it's not at all accurate, is it, to say God loved the world. I suppose at one level it is true. But it can't capture the realities of the situation, can it? You have to just attach something to it. And the writer here has just given us the simplest word possible. One that we would pass over if we didn't, children, notice it. God so loved sinners. That he sent his only son. So you might be so familiar with this text that the majestic has become mundane, the extraordinary has become ordinary, the tremendous has become typical. God so loved the world. A simple two-letter world that, that reveals the intensity, the immensity of God's love. And might I suggest to you if you're in here today and you're not overwhelmed with the realities of God's love, is it just not possible, even probably likely, that the reason you're not is because you're not overwhelmed with the intensity of your sin? But in the glory of God's love, the intensity of your sin is but a drop in the ocean of the intensity of God's love. A sight of this love, it changes everything. It's a sight of this love that compels devotion. It's a sight of this love that awakens desires for holiness. It's a sight of this love 
that, that brings salvation. It's a sight of this love that you must receive. And it's a sight of this love that gloriously, gratefully, today, you can receive. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would help us even this day as we walk forward in the good works you have set before us. To not be casual towards your grace, to not be indifferent towards your love. That we would know it's amazing and astonishing love that you have revealed to us in Christ Jesus that demands our life, our all. And we pray that you would ravish us with that love once again, according to your Son's grace, in whose name we pray. Amen.